Well, take your Bibles and turn back with us to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The book opens here with God communicating to us through His Son. Sometimes it's important to uh, the, the messenger, and the, is as important as the message, how it's communicated, things were going, and the husband said, well, the dog died. And uh, the wife was devastated. Why in the world did you tell me that like that? Why did you just blurt it out? You're so tactless. You, 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 just, you just say things off the cuff, and it hurts. You, why didn't you say Why don't you ease me into it? He said, well, why? What, what could I have done? Well, he, she said, when I got to New York and called back, you could have said the dog's on the roof. And then when I got over to London, you could have said the dog fell off the roof. And, and then when I got to Parrish, you could say, well, the dog's at the vet and at the dog hospital and not, not doing very well. And then when I got to Rome, you could have said, brace yourself, honey, the dog died. So you could have eased into it. And he said, well, I'll try to do better next time. And the wife said, okay. She took a breath and said, well, how's mother doing? She's on the roof. (laughs) Well, that's a funny story. It's going to get us into a very serious passage of Scripture today. We're looking at how God communicates to us the greatest message that has ever been communicated. It's a message of Christ himself. And we saw last time in verses 1 and 2 that the, uh, the prophets did the best they could at communicating the things of God, but they could only go so far. And, and so the Son came to give us the final word and give us the full message. And, and the thing we saw last time is the Lord is kind of like this great prism of, 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 of a diamond or something that held up in the sunlight. And as the sun shines through, there, there's seven different rays of excellence that's coming out of that prism. And each of those uh, issues of excellence concerning the sun are found in our passage of Scripture in verses uh, uh, 2 and 3. And so we looked at that last time, this great message uh, dealing with the Son and all that He is in His glory. But as we move on now to, the, to uh, uh, verse 4, and then moving on down, we, we find a, another message given here. In the earlier portion, that first few verses, the issue is that the no matter how wonderful the prophets were, no matter how great the Old Testament scriptures were, and so forth, no matter how wonderful the law is, it comes up short when it comes to the great message of Jesus Christ. And so uh, they, they failed. But what about angels? Maybe the message could have come, maybe not through prophets or through Moses or somebody like that. Maybe the, the message could have come through angels. Why didn't the Lord use angels to give the message of the gospel and the message about the, the splendor and the greatness of Christ? And so the, the, our, our author here of Hebrews says the reason why is because they weren't good enough. That there, uh, there, it took the supreme messenger to bring the supreme message, and that supreme messenger, of course, is Christ himself. So he wants to talk to us now about the superiority of Jesus Christ over all other messengers, including those of angels. And as he does this, he builds his argument, starting in verses 4 and 5. And the first thing he says, the reason why the message came through the Son is because the Son has a better name. A better name. Look at verse 4. He says, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. 
Before we examine the details here, which is going to be some pretty heavy stuff here, before we do that, we need to back off and, and see what uh, was going on in that culture concerning angels. Why did he even need to bring up angels? If you're a student of Scripture, you probably recognize that it is very rare. Matter of fact, this is the only passage in Scripture that goes into this kind of detail about angels uh, in this kind of way. Angels are all the way through the Bible, but, but it, Scripture never kind of settles down and talks about angels to this depth as the author of Hebrews does. So we have to question why is he doing that? What, what was going on in the world at that time that led him to say these things? And so we start with the Jewish world. Uh, if the Jews stayed with the Old Testament, then there was no problem because the teaching about the angels in the Old Testament was, was very clear. But the Jews didn't do that. The Jews, uh, the, many of the rabbis just loved to move off and add extra biblical revelation to the scriptures. Uh, Jesus got on them, you remember, back in the Gospels for adding to the scriptures and taking away from the scriptures and so forth. So they were handy at doing that. And in some of their holy books, uh, they added a whole layer of understanding concerning angels that was not true and was not in the Bible. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary on Hebrews, uh, said a number of things I'll kind of tick off here. He said they, they were especially, they, they gave names to, to angels, especially present angels, that is the angels that were in the presence of God. Uh, they named them Raphael and Uriel and, and Flananel and, and, for, and that included also Gabriel and Michael and, and some of those others, uh, Michael. They also believed in 200 angels that controlled, yeah, Michael sang, but not Michael. Uh, they, they believed in 200 angels that controlled the movements of the stars uh, and they kept them all in their courses. There was an angel who controlled the never-ending succession of the years and the months and the days. There was a mighty angel over the sea. Uh, there were angels of the frost and of the dew and of the rain and of the snow and of the hail and the thunder and the lightning. There were angels who were wardens of hell, who, who were the torturers of the damned. There were recording angels who wrote down every single word anybody ever said. Uh, they, there were angels that the rabbis could even say that there were so many of them that the rabbis would say every blade of grass has its own angel. So the, the Jews had evolved their understanding of angels until it was on par with what the mythological gods of the, of the pagan people. So you recognize, if you know anything about mythology and so forth, and if you watch any of the Marvel movies and so forth, all these mythological gods that are out there, that's kind of what had happened to Judaism. They had added up all these different, uh, different angels, almost as if they were God. Now there's one danger... One major danger found throughout this entire book that our author is concerned about, and that is that there be nothing between us and God any longer. All barriers between us and God have been removed. We do not come into the presence of God. We do not draw near to God through any other intermediaries. We come completely and solely through Jesus Christ. This, has been, this is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. And so angels have become intermediaries in the Jewish system in which they came to God through the angels. And he is debunking that. He's getting rid of that. The angel, these kinds of things the Jews made up were not true. We come directly and completely through Jesus Christ. That's the essential message of the book of Hebrews. And so there is nothing between us and him. Today we, we can make that same mistake when, we, when people say, well, you, have to, you can pray to God through the saints. 
or through Mary or through something else like that. These are intermediaries that come between us and God. The, the whole heartbeat of the book of Hebrews is that is no longer necessary. We come to the Lord directly through Jesus Christ, our high priest. But what's going on in the Greco-Roman world at the same time uh, that we see the Jewish world? What about the Greeks and the Romans? Uh, there was a, the first heresy that ever affect Christianity following the New Testament was a heresy called Gnosticism. And it became full-blown in the second century. Uh, so it really wasn't a system as such in the first century, but the roots were there. And that is because it came from the Greek philosophers such as Aristotle and Plato and those guys who had made up a lot of stuff. So the, the roots were there, and when Gnosticism really took off in the second century, there was already those roots that are found in the first century. And at least three New Testament books referenced these roots. Uh, there is uh, the Philippians chapter, I mean Colossians chapter 2 talks about that to some degree. 1 John chapter 4 also references the roots of Gnosticism. And here in Hebrews, we also see some of the same thing. And when the, when the Gnosticism became full-blown, one of the features of Gnosticism was that they worshipped angels. And so that was already embedded in the system to some degree because of the mythology of, of the ancient Greeks and so forth. And so the author here is doing everything he can to destroy that idea that angels are to be worshipped. They had reduced Jesus down to the level of angels and he will have nothing to do with that. So, to the Jews, the message is this. There's only one way to God and that is through Jesus Christ. Nothing stands between us and him because of the work of him, of Christ on the cross. And to the, to the Greeks and the Romans, who later on moved into Gnosticism, he is saying that the Lord is superior to all other beings He's superior to even angels. He's not one of them. He's superior to them. Now today, we're, most of us don't have those same issues, but angels have become popular again in our society. And a lot of people are have claiming experiences with angels and demons and so forth. And by the way, uh, that's why I preached on that about six weeks ago. Gave you a thumbnail on angels. And uh, this fall in our, our Biblical Training Institute, uh, Owen and I will be tagging up on teaching a course on angels and demons. And some of you may want to be involved in that. What does the Bible actually say about the angelic world and, and the demonic world? That's important. And uh, we're going to look at that. But angels, uh, but the scriptures do not call out for us to have experiences of that kind. Uh, our present image of angels then is different from that. But, but here's something else that's happened in modern times because we don't go back to scripture. What, are scriptures, what picture does the scriptures give us about angels? Whenever we run into an angel, they're mighty, powerful, majestic creatures. No, many times they're warriors and in, engaged in battle, engaged in war. And that's the way scripture speaks of them. Whenever anybody ran into an angel, it was a fearful thing. As a matter of fact, one of the first words out of an angel's mouth many times when they showed up was, was simply this, do not be afraid. Because they were afraid. They were fearsome creatures. But something happened in the Victoria age that uh, is very interesting. In the Victorian era, uh, the idea of angels being warriors and powerful and majestic shifted over to angels being women. And you see in artwork, you see women, beautiful young women with wings. <laughs> 
that are angels, and that became the, the picture that most people carried forward with angels, these sweet little uh, women who are just so gentle and kind rather than the picture we have in Scripture. And so whatever our distortion is of anything from what Scripture teaches, we're wrong. And that is true of angels as well. But let's return to our text. Those are all background information. And in verse 4, he says, Having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. He's going to show now the rest of this text today the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, over angels. And uh, he starts off by saying that, they, that he's better than the angels. This is 13 times... In the book of Hebrews, he will say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is better than something else. Thirteen different times. Always contrasting whatever with himself, and he always is superior to all other things. But we're a little bit surprised when the first thing he says is he's, he's better than the angels because he had a, has a better name than the angels. That, that seems to us a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, we don't think of some name being better than another name, usually. You know, if I said my name, which is Gary, most of you know, is better than your name, you might put up a fuss. Well, on what basis do I say my name is better than your name? I mean, I could say that, but who, who's going to believe that? Matter of fact, if we're going by popularity, my name isn't popular. There's nobody been named Gary since the 1950s. You know, if you run into a Gary, you know they're just about ready for the home. So, so that's, that's, you know, you know what the most popular names are today? For men, or young boys, I guess, babies, Liam and Noah. Those are the two most popular names. So when people come along to, to name their children, they're, they're not looking at the meaning of the names. They're looking at the popularity of the name. And so there's a couple of things different in ancient times. A name in ancient times stood for the, the person himself and the authority of that person. So when we speak in someone's name, we're speaking in the authority of that person. When we pray to the Lord in Jesus' name, we're coming before him in the authority of Jesus. That's the only reason we can come. When our boys were young, I might send Brian outside to say, go tell, go, go tell Ben to come in. And Brian would say, Ben won't listen to me, which is probably true <laughs> then, then and now, but he won't listen to me. And so I would say, you tell him I said to come in. Now he goes out with my authority. That made a lot of difference. We come to the Lord in the name of Christ, and that name means something. But there's something else, too. Names actually had meaning. People named their kids because they, the, the names meant something. And we don't usually think about that very much. Uh, I don't know what Liam means. I could probably look up Noah real quickly. But I did look up Gary. Do you want to know what Gary means? No, you don't. But I'm going to tell you. It means spear. Now, I'm sure my mother never thought about that when she named me Gary. Uh, it means spear. That could have been, maybe she did look it up and said he's going to be really pointed or, or he's going to be real picky or he's going to be a danger. I don't know. But the little website I looked up said uh, that Gary's are known for their sharp wit. Huh? Uh, Marcia said something. I'm going to let that go. But okay. In in ancient times, they would often name their kids after uh, what the kid they, they wanted their kid to grow up to be, or maybe what the kid uh, uh, is becoming. There, there's some evidence that some people's names were changed as they grew up to more reflect what they had become. 
And I think uh, if there's a biblical example of this that stands out to me, it's, uh, it's that Old Testament character named Nabal. Remember him? This was, uh, this, that name Nabal means fool. And, and Scripture says clearly he was a fool. Remember him? He was married to Abigail. He opposed David. He's going to lose his life. Abigail rescued him. He had a stroke. He died. David married Abigail. Remember that story? But his name was Fool. Now, what parent names their kids Fool? Yeah? Why would you do that? Uh, probably wouldn't. So there's a possibility that his name was changed to reflect his character later. Or maybe that was the name he went by because of his character. So that's a possibility. But when it comes to our Savior then, his name is the Son. The angels in Job a couple times are called the sons of God, but they are not the Son of God. His name is superior. His person is superior, and that's reflected in his name. Now, let's examine this a little more closely. He is the eternal Son of God. Uh, and son, and the word son, describing Christ, uh, identifying Christ, is used 22 times in the book of Hebrews. It is the most used term for Christ in all the book of Hebrews, by far and away. Uh, it says he's always, he has always been the son. Uh, there's never been a time when he wasn't the son. And the son defines who he is. But there's been some confusion here concerning the son. And some have said it's not his name, it's a title that he, he in, uh, took upon at one point in time. He's always been the second person of the Trinity, but he's not always been the Son. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest for a moment. You need to rest. You're going to need to rest. Uh, I'm going to go deep in the weeds here for a few minutes. All right? Some of you are not going to be able to go with me. Some of you are going to doze off. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you permission to take a power nap, okay, uh, for about five to seven minutes. If you, if you can't hang and you don't care, then take that power nap. I will not point you out. I will not put your name in the bulletin, okay? And then I'll tell you when to wake up and come back to the point. But I do have to go into some extremely deep detail at this point for a, per, a, a particular reason. There is a doctrinal view called incarnational sonship that Jesus Christ became the Son at the point of birth, at the Incarnation. Now, I wouldn't even bring this up here. I'd probably just let it slide, except one of our favorite Bible teachers, John MacArthur, embraced that view of incarnational sonship and made a huge deal about it several years ago. Uh, he, he put it in his commentaries. He put it in his Bible study notes. He preached it everywhere he went. He, he made a big deal about the incarnational sonship. Then he recanted some years later. Yeah, deeper study and maybe some Bible scholars uh, convinced him he was wrong. And he publicly recanted. What a thing for a man of that stature, someone we deeply respect, to stand up and say, I was wrong in a major area of such as this. So we have to very much respect him for doing that. But the problem is these teachings never got out of his commentaries. So if you go read his commentary on Hebrews now, it is still there, and apparently will always be there. I asked Phil Johnson, the guy who does most of his editing, said, why, is that? why don't you get rid of that stuff out of the commentaries and study notes? He said, once you get those kind of things in a published book like that, you can't hardly get them out. So going forward for the rest of time, you'll have uh, what I would call at least a minor heresy, 
written by John MacArthur in his study notes, and you need to know why he came to that conclusion and why he realized he was wrong. So I'm going to go with that with you for right here. Here's, here's a few statements out of his commentary to show what he said. He said, Christ technically did not become the Son of God until he was incarnated. Christ was not the Son of God in eternity past. He was the second person of the Godhead. Another quote. The Bible nowhere speaks of the eternal sonship of Christ. He's wrong on that, but that's what he said. A third quote. He was, all, he has, was always God, but he became the Son. And then a final quote. He was not a son until he was born into this world through the virgin birth. That's known as incarnational sonship. Many people push back on this because historically, this, this doctrine has been around for hundreds of years. And historically, whenever it's popped up, it's led, it led a group of people down the pathway of denying the deity of Christ. And so it's kind of like a gateway to, to heres, true heresy of denying the deity of Christ. So a number of scholars uh, push back heavily on that. John MacArthur was a member of the IFCA at that time, a group that we're involved with at this church, and I've been on the board for eight years with the IFCA. And when he was doing this, uh, the IFCA got very divisive over this. A number of our churches left the movement because of this doctrine and a couple of their ideas. And so it's not just a minor thing when you push something like this, and so I have to take a look at it with you for those that care about that. What confused John MacArthur, a man of this stature, a, a careful student of the Bible, a man that we appreciate, has done so many wonderful things in the teaching of God's Word. What confused him? Well, there's two statements in particular that confused him. In verse 4, it says he, he inherited a more excellent name. And so MacArthur thought well, if he inherited something, that means that that was passed on, that was inherited like we think of inheritance. But that's not how the word inheritance, that's not what it means in this case here, because it, it, it means something very different than what we, we, how we use it today. How do we use it? Uh, we use it as if if somebody died and left you something, you have inherited that something, right? Yes, that's how we use it in our modern times. If uh, when Marcia's parents passed away, and a number of you know that, uh, that they both died within 10 days of each other back when we were about 26 years old, 27 years old, uh, here at Southern View, and they died back to back. And uh, when, they, when they passed away, they had uh, in our driveway, which at that point was the church driveway, uh, they had a travel trailer they had just recently purchased. They had an old car, and then they had a gigantic car. They had a big Oldsmobile. I mean, a big Oldsmobile. Uh, when I left Moody Bible Institute, we put everything I owned in the back of that trunk. In that trunk, that included a four-drawer file cabinet that I still own to this day back in the office. We put that in there. We put all my books, all my clothes, everything I owned in that trunk. And we still could have put a washer and dryer in there. I mean, they, these are gigantic cars, you know. Now, I, I know you'd have a hard time imagining this. But when I, I and Marsha inherited this car, this was not the dream car of a 26-year-old. You know, it wasn't a car I've always wanted. But I inherited it, and she inherited it anyway. That's how we think of inheritance. But here the word inheritance means something very different. Think about it. God does not die. And therefore, God does not leave behind anything. The word is being used differently, obviously. 
So the word itself means here to appoint. Jesus was appointed. It's a, if, you, if you want to write that in here, he, as he has been appointed a more excellent name. At some point, in not, not point really, in eternity past, in eternity past, it was agreed upon within the Godhead that he would be the son. Now how that works, we don't know. But that was appointed and agreed upon at that point. MacArthur missed that point, that inheritance doesn't always mean someone died and left something behind, which is impossible with God. Second thing he got confused by is that uh, is, is the second statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so if MacArthur looked at that and said, well, there must have been a point in time. He said, today I have begotten you. Another confusing statement. This is actually a quote from Psalm 2-7. And what MacArthur missed there is when that was quoted, when that was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that was hundreds of years before the incarnation. The Lord had the name Son hundreds of years, even in biblical record, before he was declared the Son in the New Testament. The Father said of him in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's always been his beloved Son far before the, the incarnation. That, this means that Jesus did not become a son on a particular day. It simply means that he began to exercise certain prerogatives of his sonship, of who he is. Having completed the work on the cross and having resurrected from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, verse 3. And then he began a ministry as our high priest, which will be one of the major messages of this book, our intercessor. He never did that before. He was not our high priest before. He was not our intercessor in that sense before. He did not sit down in that sense at the right hand before. And so at this point in time, after the resurrection, after the ascension, he began to uh, take on certain prerogatives of his sonship. And this is the passion of our author. Now I want to back off. You can, uh, I th you can wake up now. So you took that power nap, wake up. I'm going to have to put you in a swoon again in a minute. But if you can wake up for a minute and listen to me, I want to back off and I want to look at the point. What is the point that he's making? What is he trying to say here? He is not concerned about the fine points of the Trinity or even the sonship of Christ. Those things we have to examine, but that's not his major point. His major point is this and always is throughout the book is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done something so that we have direct access to God. Only he could have done that. The prophets couldn't do that. The law couldn't do that. Moses couldn't do that. Angels couldn't do that. But the Son could do that. And therefore he is superior over all things, including angels, because his work is finished. And now we have, uh, have access to God we can draw near, which we could not do in the past. Now there's one more puzzling statement. Now if you do need another short power nap, here you go. Uh, there's one more puzzling statement, verse 4. He says, having begun, become as much better than the angels. Alright, is that a problem? Did, what, what, what point did the Son become better than the angels? Think about the problem there. That would mean that there was a point in time when he wasn't better than the angels. That's impossible. He's always been superior to the
to the angels. So what's, what's he talking about here? Well, he clears this up pretty well, and you do need to wake up for this one. In verse 7, he says this, you have, you have made him a little lower than the angels. That's humanity. Mankind's a little lower than the angels. Then in verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He humbled himself by becoming a man, Philippians chapter 2. He, he, he lived on this earth in, in the state of humility. Almighty God for all eternity humbled himself to come to this planet. Why? To die for us that we might have the grace of God. He humbled himself and to be lower than the angels in position for a time. But that has all been turned around now. And he's now at this right hand of God. Now again, here's the point. So if you did fall off asleep again, wake up. Here is the big point. This is the big point of the whole thing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has removed all barriers that stand between us and God. A few weeks ago, we had this big windstorm here in Springfield and a lot of other places as well. Some gigantic trees fell down across the highways, across the way, even other states, and also around here. And as a result of that, there was barriers, and people couldn't get to their homes. They couldn't travel down the road. Our, our government sent out road crews, and, and, and these crews uh, just they cut the trees up and moved them so the barriers could be removed. And if they hadn't done that, many people still couldn't be, have gone, gone home. The barriers had to be removed. In the Old Testament, the barriers began to be removed through the prophets and the law, through Moses, but they couldn't get rid of all the debris. Angels helped out, but still the debris remained. Jesus came and totally cleared the highway. There doesn't remain a leaf on that highway any longer. We have complete, straight access to God through Jesus Christ. This is what he's done, and no one or nothing could ever have done what Jesus Christ has done. He is superior to all things. And that is the main message of this passage and of this book. But let's move on now. You, and the rest of it should be a little easier almost. Uh, verse 6 there's another reason, another argument for the superiority of Christ, and that is that angels worship him. In verse 6 he says, And when he began, uh, again being the firstborn in the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. So I've got one more hard word. By the way, this is probably the hardest section of all of Hebrews. So if you can survive this morning, <laughs> uh, you will be okay, I think. This is a hard, hard section. This is actually the verse of Scripture that the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons use to say that Jesus Christ is not totally God. That Jesus Christ is a, is a created being, a, a, a being that was born. He was the firstborn. He was created. He was born. Now here's the problem. Again, it's a misunderstanding of how terms are used in the first century. In the first century, firstborn didn't necessarily mean the one who was chronologically born first. It meant the one that was the chief, the one who controlled the family. And so looking at the way people lived in that time, you had uh, people live more simply, and many of them lived on farms. And if they lived on a farm, and as the kids grew up, as the boys grew up anyway, because the girls would get married and move off, but the boys grew up, they would stay on the farm. 
And if they had several boys or whatever, they stayed on the farm and the clan grew, got bigger and bigger. But no matter how big the family got and no matter how old the boys got, as long as dad was alive, he was the patriarch. And he called the shots. He determined everything that was going to happen. He was in charge. He was the chief. But when he died, that changed. And, that, and then that had to be passed on to someone else who would now be the chief. They would be in charge. That would be the firstborn. But while that often was the firstborn chronologically, that was typical, that isn't always the case. There's a number of examples in the Old Testament. Let me give you just one of that, Esau and Jacob. Remember Esau and Jacob? Uh, Esau was the older. He had the birthright. He was the one that was going to run the home after Isaac died. But he sold his birthright to Jacob in the worst exchange in all of history. Uh, he sold his birthright, and now who became the firstborn? The secondborn. Jacob becomes the, the firstborn. He becomes the chief. And all, and, and his, biblically, this is very important, all the blessings that would flow from Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis, right on down through Israel to Christ, all those blessings now flowed through Jacob, not Esau, because he was the chief the firstborn, he inherited the birthright because he bargained for it. But that's all he's saying here is Jesus is not firstborn in time. He is the firstborn of all things. He is the chief, the master over all things. And therefore he says he is the firstborn into the world. And when the firstborn came into the world, what did the angels do? Here's the second word. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. We know that in Luke chapter 2, when he came as a baby in a manger, just a baby, they worshipped him. And they led the shepherds to worship him as well. What our author is doing is showing the superiority of Christ over angels. Angels were never to be worshipped in the Bible. And they often were. Remember in, in Revelation chapter 19, and right at the end of the Bible, the angel shows up. John's talking to him. John gets all weak in the knees, falls down before the angel, worship the angel. And the angel said in chapter 19, verse 10, knock it off. That's in the Hebrew or Greek. Get, get up. You don't worship me. You worship God. I'm a servant like you. So angels are great servants, but they are not superior. They're not God. And so the majestic and powerful angels who are loved and adored by the Jewish people actually bow before the Son. And that shows that they are not superior. So far from this passage, in the question is concerning the Son's deity, He is God. But let's go on. Here's His third argument, His superiority. He is the sovereign Lord. Angels are merely servants. The Son is the sovereign Lord. Angels are servants. Look at verse 7. And of the angels, he said, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Angels are marvelous creatures far beyond anything that we can imagine in power and majesty. They're, they're sinless and they're awesome, but when it's all said and done, they're still created beings who live to serve God. The Lord uses wind. The Lord uses fire. The Lord uses you. The Lord uses angels, but we're all servants, instruments of His. We are not the master. But when it comes to the Son, what does He say? 
He says concerning the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is Master. He is Lord. He is King over all things. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. And then finally, his last argument, the Son's honor and authority are superior. He says in verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. I want you to note verses 8 and 9. Call the Son God twice. Verse 8, Your throne, O God. Verse 9, Therefore God, your God. This absolutely blows away anything that Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons try to claim about, about Jesus being less than God. He is declared God in one of the most clearest passages in all of Scripture. He is far greater, it says, than all of his companions and everyone else. The honor that is due the Son is because he loved, it says, righteousness and hated lawlessness. And he did something about it. You know, I can sit at home and look out my back door and say, man, I wish I, wish I could get rid of some of those weeds. Or, or I could look at the windows and say, man, I wish I'd washed those windows. Or I could look at my car and say, it sure needs a bath. But if I don't do anything about it, what does it matter? I'm just complaining or whatever. I'm just looking. The Lord looked at the need for righteousness. He saw that the world was steeped in sin. And, and he saw the horribleness of sin and lawlessness. But he didn't just see it. He didn't just proclaim it. He changed it. He came to this earth and he died for our sins to remove lawlessness and to, to give us righteousness. And that's why he is superior. Hebrews 12, 2, that we'll get to in about six years at the rate I'm going, says this, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he do what he did? For the joy set before him. Yeah. He endured the cross. So this theme is interwoven throughout all the book of Hebrews. He is superior to all things, and he has the most superior of all messages. So here's your takeaway today, folks. There is no one like the sun. And there never has been. And there never will be. Angels are the most majestic creatures God has ever created. But he is the sun. Angels are powerful. But he is God. Angels are mighty servants. But he is the sovereign Lord. Angels are perfect messengers. But he is the message. Angels are ministers. But he is the redeemer and our great high priest. A hymn writer of an old hymn we don't sing anymore said this, Who is this so weak and helpless, child of lowly Hebrew maid, rudely in a stable sheltered, coldly in a manger laid? Tis the Lord of all creation, who this wondrous path had trod. He is God from everlasting, and to everlasting God. That is who the Son is. He is superior over all things, and He is our Savior. Father, we thank you for the word of truth that we've seen today. Tough passage, very difficult passage. Lord, I hope that at least the essence of the meaning of this passage of Scripture has broken through to our hearts and minds today, and we understand better the wonder and the glory and the majesty and the splendor of Almighty God and the Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those that don't know you as Savior today, may this point them in the direction of the only one who can redeem them from their sins and give them the righteousness and the holiness of God. May their hearts be open to that, Lord, even this morning. In Jesus' name.
Amen.